Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So before we get to our main topic, I want to open with some news. We're recording this on the 20th of February. And we learned this morning that Hyperion Records was sold to Universal, Universal being in classical music now, Deutsche Grammophon, Philips EMI. And Hyperion's one of the last big independent classical record labels. I would say the last, wouldn't you? Oh, there's other independent labels, but one of the things about Hyperion is they've never streamed their music on the streaming services. They've sold music on the iTunes store since the very beginning of the iTunes store, but they've never gone for streaming because there's not enough money in the cost of making a classical album with an orchestra. And if you're getting 0.13 cents per listen, you don't get much money. And one of the problems I think we've mentioned several times about classical music Streaming services pay by track, not by minute. So if you have a Mahler symphony, which has four tracks in an hour and a half, you're not getting much money for all that time. Whereas if you have, you know, a pop record that has 10 songs in an hour, you know, they're getting five times as much for an hour's worth of music. So we only just discovered this this morning. Norman Lebrecht, who's a, how should I say, a writer about classical music who likes controversy, posted this on Twitter and he linked to some information about the company, which is irrefutable. We haven't heard any more information. So if by the time this episode is released in 10 days, we have more, I'll put a link in the show notes. I would assume that Universal is going to make some sort of an announcement because they've got lots of well-known artists and we were very happy to welcome several of them during lockdown we talked with Angela Hewitt, with Stephen Huff, with Alina Ibragamova. I'll put links in the show notes to all of those episodes. So this is kind of the end of an era, I think. Mm, yeah. It's uh, it's happening at a good time, though. I think we were, we were just talking about this. And there's some crazy stuff going on in the business end of the music. And it's been going on for a while, what with catalog sales and things like that, and people selling their music. But classical music has been waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen to make it pop, and it just hasn't. And Hyperion not only wasn't waiting for that, but was trying to do a, a more traditional recording situation, and it's it wasn't working. I, I've done some work for Hyperion in the past, and I went to visit them some years ago, and I was led into the warehouse, and look at all this old technology, I was told, stacks of CDs and boxes of CDs, a huge warehouse. I think they've... They might be up to 4,000 recordings since the label was created. They're not all in print, but for a long time they were, or most of them were in print. So we'll certainly have more information by next week. I kind of wonder if this, the timing of this somehow affects Apple's classical music app or is somehow related to that. You know, I thought of that while we were talking about it before the show, while we we're doing our show prep. And I said, nah, he's just going to think that's just a stupid connection. What would the connection be? What would the situation be? I think the situation would be that Hyperion Records are well-respected. And of all the record labels 
out there, of all the classical record labels out there, I can tell you, because I know the person who's responsible for this, that Hyperion has the best and most accurate metadata of any label. So if Apple launches their classical app and they want metadata so people can find music, this is a label to highlight. And this goes back across the entire catalog. I mentioned in a recent episode that if you go back a few years in the major labels like Deutsche Grammophon, you'll find that the metadata is sketchy. In recent years, it's been really good, but go back and it's not very good. Hyperion, their entire catalog has perfect metadata to the point that they even use the lyrics tag to put the texts of arias and songs and stuff in the metadata of their files. Yeah, that's, you know, not even pop, recording companies use metadata the right way. And here's a, a very small and very thorough classical recording company that's that's going full tilt on the, on the metadata. And it's always been admirable that they've done that. Before we get to our main topic, I want to mention something else, which I, you're going to like this. Last night, I watched a new movie on Apple TV Plus called Sharper. It's about cons, people doing cons, right? And the the my short review is Apple got conned paying for this movie. It wasn't very good. It's like a 90s low-budget flick. But there was a moment in this where one of the characters is driving up to a very expensive apartment in New York, and he's in this car, chauffeur-driven car, and he's listening to some music. He's got AirPods in his ears, and you hear the music really loud. It's the Talking Heads, Slippery People from 1983. And I thought of you. It's like, imagine in 1983 if someone's driving up to an apartment and they're playing... Tommy Dorsey, 40-year-old music. Right. And they used an 80, 1983 Talking Heads song to indicate that this guy is hip. Yeah. And again, this whole, it's like there's a time warp where there's a time, time has been erased or something around music. Yeah. You know this cracks me up that, you know, I've been talking about it for years that, you know, I would never listen to 40-year-old music 40 years ago. But now, because of the way things are... um, you know, I, I look at Twitter all the time. I see like a lot of, uh, uh, there are a lot of accounts that say, you must listen to this album. Here's the album you should listen to. And invariably, every single day, you could write the same tweets for every single album because everybody says the same thing. My favorite album. It's got, it's all bangers. I don't listen to anything else but, no matter what the album is. You know, if you're a student of the music of the 70s and the 80s, uh, you know all this music, but the reason you know it is because you've been hearing it over and over and over again. You haven't gone looking for it. It's right there. We've talked about this for years, so I don't, we don't need to go over it again. Related, a friend of mine texted me about a half an hour ago saying he just saw the Eagles in concert. Right. And he sent me a photo, said, do you know who this is? And I'm looking, I can't figure out a bunch of old guys, but he was too far away. It wasn't, you know, I couldn't really, and I don't recognize them anyway. And he said to me, probably one of the only concerts I've been to lately where I was at or under the average age of attendees. And given wow. the cost of tickets, it's obvious that young people can't afford it, this sort of concert. We've seen this with the Eagles and other bands. You said that they played for three hours. I'm not sure a young person would want to go and see a young person. A person under 40 would really want to go and hear the Eagles play for three hours. It's not... It's not something you put on your bucket list. Well, it's impressive. So he said they opened with the entire Hotel California album that took about 50 minutes, although the album's 43 minutes. They did an intermission that they did two hours of hits. That's like Springsteen, who does two and a half, three hour concerts. There aren't many who give you your money's worth in that way. Well, what's your money's worth? 
Right. Well, <laughs> he he doesn't. He actually doesn't know. His wife bought him tickets. I don't know how much they cost, but they were in the multiple hundreds of dollars because they couldn't get them when they first went on sale. So secondary market, and that's another story that we don't really talk about here. But is making a lot of noise lately is ticket prices in the secondary market. I, you know, I'm I'm moving soon, and I I convert every price into into furniture. And so when I heard that he may have paid more than five hundred dollars for a ticket, I'm like, I could buy a I could buy a chaise lounge for five hundred dollars. <laughs> that sort of thing. Okay, so I wanted to talk about triangles of sadness. Do you know what the triangle of sadness is? You know, you pointed it out to me, and I forgot. It's the it's the triangle that goes from the bridge of the nose to the two eyebrows and the bit where plastic surgeons inject Botox to make people look younger because of that worry wrinkle that comes in there. Right. And then they get then they get the triangle of horror because that's right. Because <laughs> there's too much Botox. Too and much it looks Botox. Dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the title of a very interesting movie. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a sort of satire of rich people. But the reason I want to talk about triangles of sadness is because the triangle is the basic element in stereo music, right? It's not just the two points of the speakers. It's the combination of the speakers and the listener. And I was listening to some music last week. And I mean, I know this, I've always realized this, but in my bedroom, I've got a pair of Sonos One speakers and they're set up roughly at a 60 degree angle. So that's where you get the equilateral triangle, where the distance between the speakers and the distance from each speaker to the listeners is the same. And the old stereo magazines used to put that as the optimum. I have a tattoo of it. So my speakers on my desk here, probably about 50 degrees, maybe 40-ish, right? Because I don't want them to have them too far away. Uh, what I was listening to is Brian Eno's Lux. Put a link in the show notes. It's, a, it's a, one of these generative albums. If you're familiar with the Bloom 10 Worlds app, it uses a similar algorithm to that. And there's an, a lot of space with bings and beeps going from side to side. And it made me realize how much of a difference there is in the music we hear, depending on the angle, the listening angle, right? And that was 60 degrees. Imagine like if I were to play from my iMac right in front of me, the two speakers are relatively close together. It's like a five degree difference from where I'm listening. But if I put headphones on, it's 180 degrees and it's a totally different listening experience. And what it does is it makes music very different depending on that angle, that triangle of sadness. I often wondered that because I spent a lot of time listening to music with headphones on because I did radio. And, you know, I suppose it may have occurred to me maybe that it would sound different when there's air between me and the speakers. Headphones are always, they're not the primary way I would listen to music, but they are convenient. They, ha they are convenience, which is... Hey, we're trying to play cards in the dining room. Use your headphones, Douglas. You know, that sort of thing. Or, you know, in the business of radio, you need to wear headphones because you can't have a feedback loop when the microphone's on. Now you've got me wondering, do I really want to listen to music with headphones or earbuds? Because it's a less than, I don't want to say perfect, but it's, it's less than optimum when you don't have the air between you and the speakers. Well, it's not so much the air, it's that angle of where the speakers yeah. are. When, when well, a, all of that, the space, any kind of space, yeah. any geometry, the, all of it. When, when someone's mixing an album in the studio, they're listening on speakers that are in front of them and that are probably around 60 degrees, and they're building the soundstage because of that. Once you put headphones on, that entire soundstage changes, and the, the, the relative position 
from the center of things doesn't change. It's just that the width of the soundstage changes. And it's almost as if you need a separate headphone mix, right? So when something's on the left and you're at a 60 degree angle, it's at a 30 degrees from you, right? Half 60. But on the on the headphones, it's 90 degrees from you. So if imagine if you had a headphone mix that compresses all of that. So you're hearing that same kind of position in space. This is, of course, you're thinking about this because you've been using spatial audio and that's entirely different from stereo. I, I still haven't actually even heard a full-scale uh, Dolby Atmos spatial audio thing. I've heard um, Apple's rinky-dink uh, spatial audio on the iMac, which is, it's a neat trick. Yeah. But uh, the idea that speaker that speakers are far superior to headphones, um, that that you're not getting the right mix when you listen with headphones. Like you say, it's like, oh, I know what it was I wanted to mention. There's this 10 years after album I have. It's not a great record. It's a live recording. The first time I heard it, I must have heard it on a really good system because it really sounded like I was right there. It's in, recorded in Frankfurt, or this particular opening piece was recorded in Frankfurt. And it, you really sense the airiness of, of, of the wherever they're playing. And even with headphones on, there's a sense of airiness. I don't know how they did it. I don't think it's understood by everybody to be, oh, yeah, well, that 10 years after live album is, is a great live recording. It's a good live recording. But I don't think anybody's ever discussed it the way I'm thinking about it. And whenever I want to test speakers, I put the beginning of that on. And if it doesn't sound like I'm sitting there in a Frankfurt arena, then I haven't got my speakers set up right. Um, it's, it's, it's really amazing. Now, even with headphones, they can do it. I don't know how it works. But you're, I think in general, you're right. It's, it's headphone experience on paper should be very flat. Well, the, the whole problem, and, and it's like the, the tyranny of the sweet spot is the problem. Now, I knew that guy in high school who had in his basement his speaker set up in his comfy chair at exactly, he had measured it out to get, you know, equal, equidistant, equal lateral and all that. And he had the ashtray next to it so he could, you know, recreational Partake. stuff. Right, exactly. Yeah. But do we want to be frozen in a position when we're listening to music? And it, it just seems the the fact that music is different on different speakers, is that good or bad? Is it good that you have the option of headphones and speakers, or is it bad that when you're listening to headphones, it's really not the mix that the, I don't want to say the artist intended, but the engineer intended or the producer? Well, the ear, the headphones, the earphones are a compromise. There's no question about that. Um, the compromise is you don't want to disturb people or you need to listen to the sound a little no, more or accurately, you're on the move. or you just need to monitor or you, it. You're, or you just like relaxing with headphones sure. and not being stuck in that you know, sweet spot, or you're out walking around and you don't have any, you know, options about that. Well, I guess so. I get, you know, I, I don't enjoy listening to music on headphones as much as I used to. I don't know why. Um, I, I, maybe it's because I, I listen with earbuds. I listen with AirPods and things like that. When I listen with the Beats headphones that I have, it's much more enjoyable or any larger size headphones. But still, you're right. You're getting that 180 degrees flat lined there's no, I, the only way I can think of putting it, there's no air between, there's no distance. And it's not, the music isn't allowed to blossom <laughs> from yeah, the speakers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, when you think of air as a flowing space and, and 
with slight turbulences, right? The music is affected by that. If there's wind, you, the music sounds different, right? You know, when you're listening outside at, a, at an outdoor concert, you can tell. Even inside, that the air is more alive than that little space between the headphone drivers and your ears. I, I want to just mention about your 10 years after a live album. The album containing no overdubs or additives was recorded over four nights in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Frankfurt, and Paris with the Rolling Stones mobile recording truck and later mixed from 16 tracks to stereo at Olympic Studios in London. Amazing. Very primitive by today's standards, actually. Yeah, but no overdubs. That's quite interesting. Back then, it was relatively common because it wasn't well recorded because they flubbed or something. I mean, they had multiple shows to pick the best versions of each song, but no overdubs is it's laudable for them. Uh, of course, the cover of the album has this big 16-track tape deck with, you know, showing more of the recording process than the musicians who are up in the top left corner there. I stared at that photo for hours, I, I tried to learn every inch of that Rolling the Rolling Stones truck, and uh, it was, but the fact I've forgotten that it was only sixteen tracks. That's pretty good. I think the Grateful Dead were the first to do sixteen track live recording in Europe seventy two. So by seventy three, that technology had become more available. Surely the Stones and who else had one? Ronnie Lane had a mobile unit, and surely they invested in in that stuff really fast, so they could you know lease it, rent it out. Yeah. Yeah. So the the problem, I think, with speakers, with spatial audio, it's different because, although is it, I, I've got a pair of AirPods Max on right now and I can listen to spatial audio and the space is carefully crafted, but is it crafted for speakers or for headphones? What's the right way to listen to spatial audio? What's the mix? We'll have to ask our friend Chris Conacher. I'll link to our previous episode where he was talking about immersive audio. But it makes you wonder that if they are highlighting the spaciousness of the spatial audio, what's the right way to listen? Is there a right way to listen? Should we only listen one way? Should we listen six ways? Should we listen to records on mono again? It would be interesting to have like a piece of headgear that had the spatial audio speakers, you know, like mounted to your head. <laughs> so you walked around with like a hat. With like 14 speakers. Yeah. And no matter where you went, you would always hear the right. But I don't yeah. think they can do that. I guess the, ear, so. the, the phones that you have are probably the closest we're ever going to get to that. For now. For now. Yeah. I, I can imagine Apple coming out with some improved version. But the hat? The hat idea no, I just talked hat, about? But, but with more drivers and the, maybe that takes into account things like that. A couple of weeks ago, I listened for the first time in a very long time to Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. And I realized that the whole first side is just a stereo demonstration record. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of that, yeah. Because, uh, again, I was in that 60-degree angle, and so there's a lot of movement from right to left and, you know, the screaming and the doo -doo 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 and the plane crash. And, and it's really – and I think that's why I don't like it as much anymore. Because unlike Animals, which is really a suite, or Wish You Were Here, it it's like – Half of the record is, I mean, there's some great stuff. Breathe is great. And the final track on the first side with the, 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 the scat singing voice over it. And, but it's like, there's too much there, there. As a footnote, one of the members of Pink Floyd, who's had controversial political opinions lately, is re-recording Dark Side of the Moon 
which he has every right to do. You, no one can prevent you from recording a cover of a song or an album as long as you pay royalties for it. And this Mr. Liquid is going to release a new version of the record with his own take on the record that he made 50 years ago. It was released 50 years ago. Think about it. I, you know, I would leave it alone. I, I do think that, um, I do think that they have better recordings than Dark Side of the Moon. I'm with you on that. I think Animal sounds really good. But what's the diff What's the year difference? It's like five years between those albums. Yeah, it's only five years. Animals is 77, and and Dark Side of the Moon I think was recorded in 72, but released in 73. Yeah. So I mean, the so technology. It's about five years. The technology vastly improved over those five years. I'm sure. Well, their skills improved as well. And even the writing skills, you know, from Dark Side of the Moon to Wish You Were Here, you're already gone from a concept album, but which is just music lumped together to more of a suite with the two-part Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And, and they kind of reproduced that with the, the Pigs, Three Different Ones or whatever it is, part one and two in Animals. But Animals seems to hang together better musically for me. Yeah. Of course, then they went on to The Wall, which is a totally different direction. It's, you know, it's like the Broadway musical thing. But Dark Side of the Moon is like, it's gimmicky at times. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I wonder if that's, well, we, we could do an episode of talking about Dark Side of the Moon, but I wonder if uh, it's just accidentally gimmicky because no one had ever done anything like that really before. Well, exactly. And that's why a lot of the gimmicks are there because it was their first opportunity to have a lot of studio time. So they took advantage of all the gimmicks they could come up with. And, and Alan Parsons was the engineer on that who did a lot of, you know, fancy stuff with the studio as well. So I think it was them saying, Ooh, we've got this toy. Let's play with it. Right. And mm -hmm. musically, it, it's a great album. You know, there's no reason to doubt it, but it kind of loses its luster when you listen to it too closely or too often or without the right... With headphones or with no, speakers? without or... the right um, recreational partaking experiences. Oh, you know, yeah. it's really made for that. So I, I, I still come back to the question of why have they not come up with one speaker that puts the sweet spot... Everywhere. Wherever you are. And why has there been no improvement in speaker technology other than refinements of materials? And uh, there is no speaker breakthrough. Well, unless you want to... Now, perhaps spatial audio could be the speaker breakthrough, but we're talking multiple speakers. And will there be a way to set it up with a system where you're not stuck in the sweet spot. Someone asked me the other day, if you have two pairs of HomePods, so if you have one HomePod, it does a sort of faux spatial audio. If you have two, it's a stereo pair and it's going to be a lot better spatial audio. Someone was asking me, if I have two pairs, does it even get better? No, you have two lefts and two rights. Right. Now, since it's designed to be going forward, if you're hearing from behind you the stuff that's supposed to be going forward, it's not going to be, makes my head hurt thinking about that. I was, I, you know, I'm thinking that somebody's going to think of, you get three sound bars, one on the front and one on the left and one on the right. They're normal sound bar size, right? Three feet, maybe. And it seems to me that something as simple as that could be set up to create, you know, in the way that a sound bar now sort of emulates a sort of, well, I don't know what you want to call it, surround sound sort of thing. These three bars would be the... You know the the, the every man's way of getting 
Atmos into their house. It's, it's just, you buy the three bars, you're done, you know? And if they're wireless, that's even better and all that stuff. But you're right, there is no breakthrough. It's only been more of the same. It, you need more speakers to make it sound better. So in other words, short of having a the band actually play in your living room with all of their speakers and all of their sound sources... The only way you can do is just add more speakers. So there's a company called Sing, S-Y-N-G, singspace.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. They have something called a cell alpha that they call a revolution in home audio. You can use one, two, or three. And if you put three, you have a space. It says, putting you inside the sound field for the richest, cleaner sound you've ever heard. Now, what I would like with something like that is for the speakers to know where I am and you have to wear a thing on your head. You have to wear a little thing on your head. It could track you. No, you 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 just pick up your phone, oh, your and, phone. And, and tap a button in the app. And if the speakers know where I am and which way I'm facing, it can adjust the sound accordingly. The problem is these are really expensive. I would love to try one, but it's 2500 bucks just for one. So forget about even trying a pair or three of them. But I, I can imagine, I'm looking at the space in my office, imagine speakers in all the four corners that know where you are and adjust the sound accordingly and give you a proper surround sound. Right, but you couldn't, that would be beneficial if you knew you were going to stay in, in a place for a little while. But I mean... Uh, well, you're going to have a listening room, whether it's your living room or whatever. There's going to be a place where you install this. Right. So I'm thinking you don't put it in the kitchen while you're bustling around making waffles. It's not no, for that. No, because that makes too much noise anyway. So you well, can't, right. it's like, it's like listening to a stereo in a car. People spend a fortune on car stereos to listen to the stereo over the sound of the road you're driving on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've heard good car stereo, but it's not superior. I've never been superior. Again, it's a compromise. It's like, if you want to hear music in your car, this is what you could put up with. Well, what I found with car stereos is what people like is loud. Right. And they like bassy and they like the car to, to move when the bass hits and it's a kind of a show-off thing, right? Because whether you're the driver or the passenger, you're not in the sweet spot. So it's only if you're in the middle of the back well, seat. Well, in my car, I'm in the sweet spot. Sorry, if I'm right, driving, okay. I, I readjust everything to point to right. me, but okay. no one seems but to But it's care. not designed for multiple people. Right. Okay. Should we talk about some next tracks? Sure. I've got something. It's really just a song. It's a video. There's this new Bob Dylan release called Fragments, which I'll hold up here, which is the latest bootleg series. It's the time out of mind sessions with remixes and demos and alternate versions. And it's fascinating. Time out of mind is one of the, it's like, how could someone like have four or five comebacks in his career, right? And time out of mind in 1987 was like, there had been a fallow period and then boom, he comes back with this album that any artist would love to have made an album this good. There's a music video for the song Not Dark Yet, which was released by Dylan and it uses a number of photos from the Magnum photos. Technically they're cooperative of photographers and most of them are black and white. They're kind of timed to the song. And at first you kind of wonder, does it make sense? Is it telling a story? And some of them come up at different times that do kind of fit. It, I've never seen a video like this before. I've seen videos where it's a series of photos, but that were intentionally by, say, the same photographer. Here it's dozens of different photographers. It's something like 80 photos in the five minutes of the song. 
I'll put a link in the show notes. It is interesting. It kind of fits with Dylan's, I want to say, nostalgic look back on things, particularly with his latest album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which is kind of a an oldish sounding record. So I'll put a link in the show notes worth checking out. Doug, what have you got? I think I may have mentioned this album in the past, but I kind of feel due to listen to it again because it's it's a little, it's it's a sad little record. <laughs> it's an album called Jamming with Edward, which came out in 1972, featured uh, three of the Rolling Stones along with Ry Cooter and Nicky Hopkins. He's essentially the five of them just kind of jamming in the studio, waiting for Keith Richards to show up. It should, they should have called it Waiting for Keith, but instead they called it Jamming with Edward, which apparently is a reference to the piano player, Nicky Hopkins. This is a record that, actually, it's hard to even call it a record. It was a session that was recorded during the, the Let It Bleed uh, recording sessions. Keith wasn't there. These guys were just sitting down, around waiting uh, for him. So they just jammed on, on a couple of blues tunes and things like that. It's about 30 minutes long. I don't know why it was recorded, but it was. Someone stumbled on it a few years later and uh, decided to release it. It's the second Rolling Stones Records release. It came out after Sticky Fingers and just before Exile on Main Street. And again, it was recorded in 1968 during the Let It Bleed sessions. It's not a great record at all. (laughs) It really isn't. But uh, it's fun to hear these guys just informally... Uh, screwing around in the studio, just jamming on blues tunes. Like again, it's it's Nicky Hopkins and Ry Cooter and Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts and Mick Jagger on harmonica and occasionally some vocals. It's a it's a curiosity. It was originally uh, when they had it out. It was always in the Rolling Stones bin. No one ever bought it, um, even though it was reduced in price for most of its uh, for most of its time in the record stores. I I never wanted to gamble money on it when I was a kid because. I didn't know what was on it. I didn't get to hear it till I was in college, and I, I kind of like it. I mean, if you're a completist, if you're a Rolling Stones guy, if you're a blues person, you might like this record. It's not classic rock by any stretch of the imagination. It's just an interesting recording. It's called Jamming with Edward. It's my next track. This was episode number 250 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. All you got to do is visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.